Our scripture reading for today's sermon is found in John chapter 15. John chapter 15, starting in verse 11. And I'll be reading through to verse 17. John 15, verses 11 through 17. This is from the same um, discourse the night before Jesus was crucified, as Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He said, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love each other. Will you bow with me as we pray that God would open our hearts? O Lord Jesus Christ, we heard before at the outset of our service this morning how your word does not come back void. Lord, cause your word to bear fruit in our heart this morning. Speak through our brother Mark this morning and empower him by your spirit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. According to God's word, written in Holy Scripture, there is a vital and infinite connection between the attributes of God and the character of his people. Our relation to God as Father and our relation to his Son, Jesus Christ, as Lord will be reflected by whether his character is being formed in us truly and progressively. Not that we've ever lived up to God's attributes. We haven't, of course. The consistent story of God's interaction with his people is that we are in a constant state of rebellion against him, our creator, Father, and not truly worshiping him, the one true and living God. This bleak history tells us that knowing the standard, even acknowledging as good, right, and true the standard of God's sovereign goodness, kindness, righteousness, justice, and holiness, does almost nothing to help us express in and through our lives these attributes of God. The Bible further tells us the best God's law can do is to make us aware of our shortcomings, of our sin, of our guilt, 
It cannot save us. God's law cannot forgive us and set us free. Also, helpfully, from Genesis to Revelation, God's word reveals that humanity's fall into sin was very nearly total. Sin now reigns in our mortal bodies forever and ever. Amen. That is, unless and until God himself intervenes. Unless and until God himself transforms us from one thing, rebellious sinners, to another thing, born-again children of the one true and living God. The gospel tells us we are all redeemable, every one. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God himself has intervened in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. God himself does transform us by the presence and power of God the Holy Spirit. Applying God's word to our hearts and minds, also to our behavior and our fellowship, so we may express in some real way the character of Christ. This is why Jesus came. It's also why God gave us the Holy Spirit, to redeem a people for his own possession, who'd bear his image and represent him on the earth in our place and time as individuals and as families and as a congregation gathered in his name by his spirit. The title of our sermon this morning is The Love of God and the Joy of Jesus. The Love of God and the Joy of Jesus and it is the third installment in our Advent series, Things into Which Angels Long to Look. It's important for us to realize from the beginning of our time this morning that there is something between the love of God and the joy of Jesus. Now, we might assume it's God's grace, and it is God's grace. But it's God's grace in response to something, and that something is faith expressed through obedience. Faith expressed through obedience, first believing God and his word, then obeying God through his word, has always been the path to a right relationship with God. This has never changed, and Jesus came to restore our relationship with God. In his recent book, God and the Pandemic, a Christian reflection on coronavirus and, the, and its aftermath, the right reverend New Testament scholar, Dr. N.T. Wright writes, quoting here, In the first few centuries of our era, when serious sickness would strike a town or a city, the well-to-do would run for the hills, literally. You see, part of the problem was often low-lying fetid air in a town. And the well-to-do would escape into the hills, up to the better, more healthy air. The Christians would stay and nurse the people. Sometimes they caught the disease and died. People were astonished. What was that about? Oh, the Christians would say, we are followers of this man, Jesus. He put his life on the line to save us, so that's what we do as well. 
Nobody had ever thought of doing that kind of thing before. No wonder the gospel spread, even when the Romans were doing their best to stamp it out. I hope you still have your Bibles open to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. And if you don't, I'd ask you to open it back up. Now, we'll overlap this morning just a bit with Neil's text and his excellent message from last Sunday. This is the Advent season, as we've been noting each Sunday for the last three Sundays, when Christians throughout the ages and all over the world first anticipate and then celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ into the world to save us from our sins and to redeem us, our relationship with God, and even our eternities. Advent comes from the Latin word adventum, which means arrival or coming. Advent, then, is four weeks, four Sundays before Christmas, wherein we wait for the arrival of God's Son, Jesus the Christ, and as we await Jesus' arrival, we emphasize the reasons he came. One thing we're trying to accomplish this year in this series of sermons is to elevate the effects of Jesus' coming, his arrival, as well as his life, his teaching, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his return to the Father, and his intercession on our behalf at this very moment. From Jesus' own words here in John 15, we'll see that receiving or abiding in God's love opens us up to receiving and abiding in Jesus's joy. The love of God and the joy of Jesus. What we'll still further see is that abiding in God's love and abiding in Jesus's joy comes by way of faith expressed through obedience to God and God's word. So let's get our central truth. I mentioned it earlier in the upper left-hand corner on the inside of your bulletin. Here it is, the tangible love of God and joy of Jesus are promised an inheritance of God's gracious adoption to all those among Jesus' true disciples who believe in him and obey his word. One more time, the tangible love of God and joy of Jesus are promised. And by promised, we mean an inheritance of God's gracious adoption to all those among Jesus' true disciples who believe in him and obey his word. Now, when I say the tangible love of God, I mean it's not merely theoretical under ideal circumstances. It's not merely aspirational to be fulfilled someday. And nor is it merely spiritual, often equating to not really real. God's love is real. God's love is extravagant. God's love is is costly, and God's love is true. God's love and Jesus's joy are to be in us, transcending mere human emotion, affection, reciprocity, or circumstance. We love because God loved us first. We're joyful because Jesus is eternally joyful. We love and we are joyful because God has given us his spirit. Now, our go-to text on this topic is normally Galatians 5, of course, verses 22 and 23. And please notice what comes first and second when we read, the the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, 
kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. As we've commented many times, these are nine aspects of one fruit or one product of the Holy Spirit's presence in and among God's people. They are not nine options from which to choose. They are not gifts that differ from one Christian or another. They are the good fruit that gives evidence or proof that we are children of God because his spirit resides within us. Now, as a chronic depressive, I do feel compelled to add a word of what we might call a more practical theology. All I just said is true, biblically speaking. It's a promise and an inheritance from God in Christ Jesus to all his born-again people delivered by his spirit. But here's the kicker. I must choose it. And I must keep choosing it my whole life long. And I must choose it by faith. And the reality is, sometimes I don't do that. But still, Jesus gives me the choice to overcome it. He does. It no longer masters me, but I am the master over it by faith in Jesus Christ. I may well benefit from medication also for a season or a lifetime, but Jesus's joy is real to me, and Jesus's joy can be real to you, especially, especially to those among us who don't believe it. Jesus is still in the miracle business today. I firmly believe that. And as with his miracles in the New Testament, Jesus often requires that we do something in accordance with both repentance and healing, something in response, namely believing and obeying his words. For me, believing and obeying means taking my medication. Why would we think it's any less spiritual to take my antidepressant? Here it is right here. That's 60 milligrams of Cymbalta. I'm going to put it right there. I hope it stays. And my medication for Parkinson's. Here it is. It's called Levodopa. It's 100 milligrams of something and 25 milligrams of something else. I'm going to put it right there. It's not any less miraculous that I feel as good as I feel today. Believe me, it's the joy of Jesus. God's love and Jesus's joy comes to us in the same way or through the same person, I should say, the person of the Holy Spirit, is the, who is the very person and presence of Jesus Christ among us. This is the fundamental truth of Galatians 5 and the fruit of the Spirit. It's also the profound truth of Romans 5, 5, where we read, hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Well, Let's take a look now at our text, John 15, verses 11 through 17, and and let's hope to see what I'm talking about here when I say God's love and Jesus's joy. In verse 11, Jesus says to his disciples, both then and now, look there with me, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. 
So the first major point or principle of truth that we can take from our text today is this. Jesus' teaching leads to joy. Jesus' teaching leads to joy. Or perhaps it would be better and more accurate to say, believing and obeying Jesus' teaching leads to joy. There were many in Jesus' day who heard Jesus' teaching and remained unchanged. But when we hear and we obey and we believe Jesus' teaching, it leads us to joy. Jesus was, is, and forever will be the embodiment of God's word. That means God's word in a body. First, throughout eternity past, he was, from the beginning, the word. Yuri and I obviously did not coordinate our messages here today, or maybe that was the spirit. He was with God from the beginning, and Jesus has been, from the beginning, God before he ever showed up on our scene in Bethlehem. We rightly marvel at the biblical reality that Jesus Christ was, is, and forever will be God's word, the very embodiment of God himself, the Son. In Bethlehem, he took on flesh. As Christians, along with the apostles, we began referring to Jesus as the word made flesh. As a result, it is possible for us, indeed it is proper and necessary for us to think and to speak of Jesus Christ and every single word he spoke as life and truth. Isn't that what Jesus said in that familiar verse, John 14, verse 6? I am the way and the truth and the life. So when Jesus says in verse 11 of our text, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full, he is also saying that his speech combined with our faith expressed through obedience to that which he speaks produces in us joy. How about you? Are you experiencing joy today? I, I, I don't mean a dutiful sense of joy. I mean, are we sensing, are we feeling, are we experiencing the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that produces in us joy because of the love of God in Christ Jesus for us? It's possible. But what are these things that Jesus has spoken to us? These things I have spoken to you, he says. What are these things? Well, that's found in the same chapter 15 that Neil covered last Sunday, and let's read those first 11 verses once again, just to get them clearly in mind before we move on. Look with me there from verse 1 of chapter 15 in Luke's go- in John's gospel. I am the true vine, Jesus speaking here, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. 
If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, my words abide in you, Ask every, and my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Look at verse 8 again. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So the first thing we want to take from this text and this sermon is, Jesus's teaching leads to joy, or rather, our believing and obeying Jesus's teaching leads us to joy. A second major point of, of truth or principle that derives from our text is this. It's number two, joy and love are both intertwined and they are wrapped up into, together, obedience to Jesus' living and loving commandments to us. Joy and love are intertwined and wrapped up together in obedience to Jesus' living and loving commandments to us. Let's look at verses 12, 13, and 14 before we uh, move on. Verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. As distasteful and naturally repulsive as being told what to say or, or what to do may be for most of us, believing in Jesus and obeying him and his words leads us into God's love and Jesus's joy. They really do. And so I want us to notice and put into practice the first part of Jesus's words to us here in these first three, ver- in these three verses, which is the essence of his great commandment to his disciples, both then and now. Verse 12, this is my commandment. It's a commandment. We've heard of the Ten Commandments. This is a commandment from Jesus, every bit as true and authoritative, that you love one another. And here's the catch. As I, that is, as Jesus, have loved you. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you, says Jesus. I've never heard preached or taught, nor have I read from anyone else what I'm about to say this, this verse is about. So I hope it's not a heresy. I don't think it is, but still it makes me wonder when I'm about to say something I've never heard or read before, but here goes. Christians, true Christians and churches, lay down our lives for each other. We are to die to ourselves to give each other life. We are to die to the world to give each other life. 
we may even have opportunity to die physically so that others among us might live. Perhaps it helped to be a bit more detailed. When we say we're to die to ourselves to give each other life, we're putting away selfishness, lust of the flesh that objectify God's creation, including other human beings, and personal ambition between us and all other manner of sins so that we, each other, may live. When we say we're to die to the world, we're putting away the allure of the world, the appeal of the world, the dependence upon material things to feel good or better about ourselves and superior to others less advantaged, and the competition to be better and to do better than others so that we could get a rung up and get the the better job or get the better place or the better status so that we feel better about ourselves than we do about other people. We're to die to the world. When we say we may have opportunity to die physically, we're not talking about some suicide call. Not at all. We love life. We're talking about God's love and Jesus' joy to the extent that we have hope beyond this life. And we can truly give up our lives for others if need be, if God calls us to do so. Now, I've heard messages preached, lessons taught, and commentary written about how Jesus Christ laid down his life for his disciples, both then and now, and he did. I've also heard and read that Jesus' laying down his life for us, his friends, was the supreme act of love ever offered in the history of the universe, and it was. I've even heard that we are, and especially missionaries are, to follow him in this, and we are. But I don't think that's all he's saying here. In fact, I'm sure of it. And perhaps it's a subtle nuance, but but I've never heard that we Christians ought actually to lay our lives down for each other in the church as a regular aspect of living the Christian life. Our self-lives, our worldly lives, perhaps even our physical lives, so we might live well together in Christ, in hope, in love, and enjoy, so that we might live together, so that we might live for each other, so that we might live as individual testimonies of what it means and what it looks like to die and live again. Perhaps an example would help. Just imagine two, two, two men. Let's say it's Yuri and me. We're, we're okay. We're fine. We have a good relationship. We appreciate each other. And uh, there's no issues between us. This is just a hypothetical example, okay? But let's say that we get into a conflict with each other. Yuri thinks this, and I think that, and Yuri's really sure that he's right, and I'm really sure that I'm right. But let's imagine that the two of us, both at the same time, are willing to lay our lives down, our selfish lives, our egos, our, our desire, and perhaps even need to be right, so that the other can live. That's what Jesus is talking about here. His commandment to us is to love each other as he has loved us. And here's the other thing. Can you imagine that if we both have that same attitude that we won't find a place of resolution? There's no way. Two people, three people, four people, a whole congregation who has 
this attitude of Christ, that being God himself was not a thing to be grasped or clung to, clung to or held on to, but that he lets it go. And we let go of our stuff. We let go of our, our desire, our need to be right for the purpose of being in right relationship with God and with each other. There's no telling what we could do. And we would not be in conflict, at least not very long, on hardly any issue. Now, there are some doctrinal issues that are worth wrangling about, and I'm not denying that at all. I'm simply saying that if we relationally are willing to die to ourselves, as Christ has done for us, that there is no issue that we can't transcend. There's no problem. There's no conflict. There's no anything that will keep us in conflict. This is what Paul was talking about when he urged us to die to the lust of the flesh, die to the world, die even physically in Christ, that we might together live in and for Christ. As Jesus himself put it in John 11, verses 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. This is true whenever and however we give up our lives in following Jesus. Dying, especially to ourselves and the world, so that others may live, isn't losing. It's gain. With Paul, isn't that what Jesus is saying here in verse 12? I'm quite sure it is. Look and listen once more. This is my commandment that you disciples love one another disciples as I have loved you disciples. Do you see that? This was one of those rare aha moments for me this past week. But however rare or often they are, they're thrilling every time. Jesus isn't speaking about the love of missionaries for an unreached people group on the other side of the world. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But we have many other texts commending what we've come to call the Great Commission or outreach evangelism. This is not one of them. We're also not talking about two different kinds of love. Love for our brothers and sisters expressed in the context of the church and love the love of missionaries expressed out in the world for an an unreached people, people group. They're exactly the same love and the same kind of love birthed in us always and only by the Holy Spirit. But if we do not have it in us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ here in the church as Jesus loved us, We cannot expect to love our neighbors as ourselves, whether next door, across the street, across cultures, or on the other side of the world. Jesus is speaking very specifically here. He's speaking of his disciples, loving his disciples, who love his disciples in the same way that Jesus loved his disciples. Then, his disciples, and today which is to can do the same thing as he, which is to lay our lives down for each other. And we start right here in the church. So we can see that Jesus's joy and God's love are intertwined and wrapped up together in obedience to Jesus's loving and living commandments to us. Listen to the four verses together once more. 11 through 14. 
Jesus here speaking, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Do you hear it here? Do you see it here in the text? Can we practice it here at Bethesda? Let's give it a go. There's a third and final major truth or or principle that we can find in these verses. Here it is, number three. Jesus' true disciples, both then and now, Jesus' true disciples become his ever-enlarging family of friends. I loved Dave Burrell's message a couple of weeks ago when he talked about God getting more family in Christ, and that's why he came. This is the same, uh, around the same idea. Jesus' true disciples, both then and now, become his ever-enlarging family of friends whose Christ-like love for each other is the fundamental distinctive of our identity. I want you to think about that. Whose Christ-like love for each other is the fundamental distinctive of our identity. If it's the fundamental distinctive of our identity, Christ-like love for each other, then it's not a whole lot of other things. N.T. Wright continues in this excellent and challenging little book that he wrote, God and the Pandemic. Quote, The fascinating thing is that much of the world has picked up the hint of caring for one's neighbors in times of need or calamity. Much of what we take for granted in social attitudes now was Christian innovation. Let me read that again. Much of what we take for granted in social attitudes now was Christian motivation. It was missing a couple commas. The ancient pagans didn't do it like that. Medicine cost money, so did education, and the poor were poor, so people assumed, because they were lazy or unlucky. It wasn't society's job to look after them. The Christians disagreed. They picked up their rule of life from the Jews via Jesus, of course. The Jews had those texts, those scriptures, which kept circling back to the belief that there was one God who had a special concern for the poor, the sick, the outcast, the slave. Their communities, by and large, practice a kind of extended communal family life. The early Jesus followers got hold of that, but extended it to the increasing and increasingly diverse family of believers. Then, long story short, the modern world, touchingly, has borrowed bits of it. Medicine, education, and social care for all, and sometimes thinks it has discovered this for itself, so the religious bit can now drop away. And herein lies the key to the church's presence in the world in our place and time. We don't allow the world to dispense with the the religious bit, but we don't do it by staging faux rallies, by opposing the province or the state as it does its job to address the health, safety, and welfare needs of its citizens, or by insisting on our rights. We do it by means of God's love and Jesus' joy, both of which come to us supernaturally. That is, once again, 
in and by and through the person of the Holy Spirit. Jesus includes us. He invites us to join him in his mission of mercy, of rescue, beginning with us and then extending outward. Did you hear him in verses 15, 16, and 17 of John 15 as Yuri read them? Look there with me once again as we conclude. Verse 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. We are to be a model and a beacon to the world, church. Jesus has invited us to love each other so that we can join him in loving the world. This is the way. He is the only way to God's love and Jesus' joy promised us as an inheritance if we are his born-again children, if we are his appointed disciples, if we are his chosen friends. The love of God, the joy of Jesus. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we once again come to this point in our worship gathering where we have heard your word read, we've heard your word preached, we've heard the gospel proclaimed, and we all need your help, the help of the Holy Spirit to believe and to obey. And Lord, let us not miss that, that you're, you are in the midst of it all. Whatever you command us, whatever you give us to do, most especially this bearing of fruit business, we cannot do apart from your Holy Spirit. We will not do apart from your word. We need to know you. We know, need to know your will and your ways. And we need your Holy Spirit who indwells every one of your adopted children. Every one of us. And so we need you to continue your work in us to transform us into the image of Christ. Most of all, we need you to give us Christ-like love and joy. Love for each other first. Love for others second. Love for the world. And of course... You're the only one who has the capacity to love the whole world in a way that can be described as love. A choice of preference without regard to self-interest. Lord, help us to follow you in this. And, and, And first, though, Help us to love each other as you have loved us. In Jesus' name, amen. It has often been noted that if you want to know what's on a man's heart, look at what his concern was.
just before he died. And as Yuri uh, indicated earlier, uh, just before he read John 15, that's part of the discourse of Jesus to his disciples before he went to his trial, his rest, his trial, and to the cross. Um, and in verse, and in chapter 17, we get uh, some really heart-rending prayer before his father. And I just want to read it. Yuri read it last week uh, in his message, but um, I think it bears repeating as applied to our message today. I do not ask for these only, speaking of the disciples that he called there in his time, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. So this sort of unity is possible. It's not merely aspirational. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly or completely one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love which with you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we pray with Jesus, if I can put it that way, that you would make us one and that you would give us your love, that your love would be in us, that the love of Christ demonstrated for us at the cross would be in us, and that this would result in our unity, our harmony, and that the world would know because of our unity and love with which we love each other and love them, they will know that you sent Jesus. Forgive us for the times when we have not given an accurate testimony of you, of your character, of your attributes. We ask you, continue to transform us into the character of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming. We'll see you next week.